I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Brought to you by three history and geography nerds and an internet-powered balloon, this podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Dublin, Ireland. And today we'll be talking about Brunei, a tiny independent state of just 2,200 square miles, located on the north coast of the island of Borneo in Southeast Asia. Borneo is a tropical equatorial island, one of the largest in the world, divided between Indonesia, Malaysia and Brunei. Brunei borders exclusively on the Malaysian section of Borneo, and its small section of coastline is inhabited by just over 400,000 people. It's among the richest nations in the world in terms of natural resources, and is traditionally ruled by a sultan. Modern Brunei is ruled by a Malay Islamic monarchy, where the Sultan acts as a head of state, effectively ruling as Prime Minister, Finance Minister and Commander of the Armed Forces. Brunei is the first and only country in East Asia to be ruled by Sharia law, introduced by the current Sultan in 2013. Would you like to walk us through the early history of Brunei? I would like to try. Uh, the early history of Brunei is a little bit hazy, to say the least. Um, partly due to lack of local sources, there's a lot of reliance on Chinese references to it. And also because there seems to have been a little bit of rewriting of history in order to um, make everything look more purely Islamic, when in fact some of its history may have been more pagan and Hindu. So. There are things that don't necessarily all join together when looking back at the grand sum of of its early history. But what we sort of know is that from the 8th, 9th, 10th century, the Chinese were aware of a a kingdom they call Boni, which is always identified as as Brunei. Um, And they had relationships with it. Sometimes they would trade with it. There would be tributary relationships where, where... the kingdoms of Brunei would would give would give money or camphor or other precious goods to uh, the Chinese emperor, um, and yeah, so really our history starts to get a bit more clear in the 1300s, which is when they think Islam arrives in in what is now Brunei, uh, probably as part of it spread throughout that region. So, uh, Muslim in, uh, Indian Muslims came into that region as, as traders, or also Arabs came to the, the Southeast Asia as traders. Um, and also Brunei would have been under control of a, a Javanese empire um, during some of that period. Uh, again, the relationships between these sultanates are unclear, but there were various different island sultanates dotted around the region, and occasionally one would be more powerful than the other and would dominate the others. And Brunei would eventually fulfill that position. But in the 1300s, it was it was definitely a subservient uh, region to uh, to an empire based out of Java. 
around the time that Islam arrived in Brunei, Joe, was that when the first sultan was declared or uh, where did that term come the from? The term sultan is a, is a Middle Eastern term. So it's an Arabic, an Arabic word meaning sort of uh, authority. So it would have been applied in, in the Middle East, in the Muslim world there, to a, a ruler who had sovereignty over an area but wasn't claiming to be, uh, you know, a, a powerful governor. Um, of the whole world, you know, a caliph, a caliph is the word that was used for that. So the caliphs would have been emperors. So sultan is probably analogous with uh, a king in Europe. So who was the first sultan that we know of in Brunei, Joe? The first sultan we know of is called Muhammad Shah, and that may have been his birth name, or that may have been a name he took when he converted to Islam. It's a little bit unclear whether he was always a Muslim, or he converted from being a Hindu or pagan ruler. Uh, his his rule began in thirteen sixty eight. And during his, his reign, uh, there's a really interesting character turns up called Ong Sam Peng, who is clearly important to Brunei in history, but his importance is a little unclear because no one can agree on exactly what he did. So he was, he was a Chinese minister or, or trader who operated in the region. And he was born in China and ended up living in Brunei and becoming quite an influential character there. So th- this shows the strong relationships between the Chinese mainland, and um, and Brunei is a city in Borneo because, of course, the South China Sea is all that separates them. Uh, recently in the Brunei Times, Rosan Yunus wrote about the legend of Aung San Ping because, of course, despite his importance in Brunei history, he's still a legend. And I, I love the way he's described as coming to Brunei. I, I caveat this with, it's probably not true. Um. The legend is that Aung San Ping was a Chinese minister sent by the Emperor of China to steal a giant jewel belonging to the dragon of Mount Kinabalu. That's the bit I think might not be accurate. Um, I don't think they had dragons in, in that region at any point, historically. Heresy! Aung San Ping was ordered by his senior colleagues to surrender the jewel to Ong Bong Kong, who is another person I don't know anything about. Uh, fearing for the lives of his men, Aung San Ping set sail to return to Borneo and ended up in Brunei with all his men. And so he became a governor of, of a district. He may have married a princess. Some accounts say he became the second sultan. But of course, that would make the sultans Chinese. So that's unpopular among the current royal family's traditions. But he was definitely an important character and kind of emblematic of how confusing this history is. Um, eventually, the Brunei sultans became the most powerful sultans in the district. So in and around the 1400s, they were at their widest extent of empire. They controlled most of the coasts of Borneo, which is a, a huge island. I think it's the third biggest island in Asia. One of the biggest islands in the world, yeah. Um, and it also controlled the Sulu Islands, which are kind of up north of there. And sort of a lot of modern Malaysia and the Philippines would have been under control of its empire. But we came across a great word when researching this kind of empire. So it's called a Thalassocratic Empire, which means an empire that literally just does the coasts. They wouldn't ever penetrate into the, the jungle-ridden islands. Um, like, much like the, the Greek empires in, in, in the classical world, they would have been ports around seas and they traded with each other and didn't really worry much about the inland. So it was an empire, but it didn't have a lot of depth of penetration into, into the countries where these cities were. Um, and then an important moment comes when Europeans start getting into the area and as is traditional, start messing up the local power balances. So in 1511, the Portuguese conquer uh, Malacca, uh, which is to the west of Brunei. 
And this scatters, it, it was a powerful Muslim kingdom. And this scatters lots of Muslim traders and powerful people into the rest of the region. And many of them settle in Brunei and really accelerate the conversions to Islam in that region and, and cement its role as a as a center of Islam in, in Southeast Asia. So Mark, then we have the arrival of the Spanish into Brunei during the Age of Exploration, which has become something of a theme in our podcast so far. It did change uh, the world how, a little bit. <laughs> it did, it did. Uh, how did the arrival of uh, foreign powers impact Borneo and Brunei specifically, Mark? So originally, not that much. Um, originally, it was actually uh, Ferdinand Mag- Mag- Magellan's crew found... Uh, Brunei, they were guided to it by, by some locals. Uh, this was after Magellan himself had been killed by no less a spear to the face. That'll that'll get that job done. Um, that that is enough. Yeah. But um, anyway, Magellan's crew um, did continue on with their journey back towards Spain. Um, and This they, was the first circumnavigation of the world, right? Yes, yes, this is the, the, the Magellan voyage, the, you know, probably one of the okay. single greatest achievements by, by anybody ever. Um, anyway, they, they, they went uh, close to Brunei. They were guided there into the shallow waters uh, by, local, uh, by locals who, who, who knew the coastline. And it was a man by the name of Antonio Pigafetta, an Italian, who went uh, on land and apparently wrote about uh, what he saw and his experiences. And he, he, he noted that they were quite well armed for uh, um, uh, other kind of comparable powers in the area. They had a lot of uh, cannons, lots of riches and pearls and gold and things like this. Uh, and his, his account is pretty, uh, pretty evocative. He wrote. He wrote some. Uh, I think he's the only person who kept a diary on that voyage. So he's quite an important source for a lot of this region. But he he described a city of twenty five thousand families living in wooden houses built on stilts to raise them above the water. And at high tide, the women would ride around a boat selling merchandise. The Sultan's palace was surrounded by brick ramparts and protected by numerous brass and iron cannons. So these weren't, you know, these were modern people in that regard. They had modern day weaponry, and um, and. The commerce, so, so the you know this was a a well developed civilization when the Spanish visited, for sure. And actually, the interesting you bring up the 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 notion of uh, villages on water. To this day, Brunei actually has a village of about the same population, thirty thousand people, uh, known as the Venice of the East, uh, and it is similarly uh, all daily life is conducted on houses on stilts out in the sea. Uh, so that's something that's to this day. Anyway, um, moving on, after this kind of initial uh, very brief encounter, uh, there was an event in 1578 called the Castilian War um, or the Brunei and Spanish War. It has, it has many different names. And it's significant because it, it marked a sort of curtailment of the influence of Brunei in the area. Um, Spain was increasing their influence, not necessarily directly from Spain, but actually from their, their colonies in Mexico, because they had already uh, oh. uh, established colonies in Mexico. And they had, uh, it was a man by the name, he was the new, the new Spanish governor in Manila in 1576, Francisco de Sande. He came along from Mexico and he was, um, let's say, proactive. He was uh, very keen to push Christianity in, in, in the Philippines, uh, to bring in more missionaries. Um, this ran contrary to Brunei's strategy, which was to do the exact same but with, with Islam in the area. Um, and 
as part of his kind of uh, his new regime, shall we say, in 1576, he sends uh, letters and messages to the then Sultan Saiful Rijal, and he asks him three questions. He asks him for good relations. Sounds fair enough. He asks him for uh, a cessation of uh, Islamic missionaries in the Philippines. Can see where. So that gets a little bit, little bit less good. Yeah. Yeah, you can see where the disagreements are starting to come in. And and then, while while you're not pushing Islam in the Philippines, would you mind terribly if we push Christianity in Brunei, um, please? To which, of course, I said no problem at all. Uh, all. All in all, it sounds like a balanced treaty to me. Yeah, yeah, it, it has that kind of uh, <laughs> that feeling of like you already knew what the answer was going to be to this. Um, <laughs> it, it was no, no, plenty, plenty of no. Um, and he had uh, this uh, Francisco de Sande. He had help from some disgruntled nobles, Bruneian nobles, who were able to 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 guide what eventually became the attacking force. Uh, it was approximately 400 Spaniards, 1,500 Filipinos, and 300 uh, uh, native Borneans. Um, and they attacked, took the capital quite easily, apparently. But the, the follow-up is where some kind of dispute comes into it. The generally regarded factual occurrence of what happened was that over the 72 days or so that they, they held the capital, the Spaniards were dropping like flies from uh, dysentery and uh, perhaps other you know things like malaria. It's a very um, very moist climate, so you could you could see that being being a problem. The Bruneian uh, account of this is that one thousand of their strongest warriors, led by the brother of the Sultan, you know, attacked the capital and vanquished the the interlopers in a heroic fashion that has kind of gone down as this. Uh, semi-legendary tale of, of Bruneian uh, guile and braveness. Um, and I'm sure all of those 1,000 warriors had, had had loads of girlfriends and they were all really handsome and seven foot tall and this kind of I, thing. I feel, it, I feel like you don't buy it, Mark. Not totally convinced. Um, you think it was mostly the cholera and dysentery that did I, I, I think I think it was mainly the toilet-based uh, diseases that it did for the Spanish. Uh I, I know I like had so a, many a other very, places they tried to conquer. I was just going to say I, I had a pretty serious dinner last night, and I know that my my reaction to that has been pretty pretty horrific. So uh, I'm uh, I, I feel for these 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 diuretic uh, these these struggling Spaniards. The upshot of all this is that it became the end point of the thalassocracy of Brunei. They no longer had the same influence in the region. Uh, their their navy was decimated essentially, and from here on they became more a quietly consistent uh, trading hub. And this uh, this all happened in in 1578, but by 1599 relations had uh, had warmed up between the Spanish and the Bruneians, and they resumed a sort of a, a friendly trading relationship. Um, but from here on, this was this was. The, the new character, I guess, of the, the Bruneian state. Okay, so we'll take a quick break and next we'll talk about how Brunei became a British uh, protectorate. But first we'll he- hear a short clip of Adai Adai, which is a traditional Brunei fishing song.
a short clip of Adai Adai, a traditional song sung by fishing workers in Brunei. So far in our story, Brunei has converted to Islam, managed to repel an attack from Spain, but has now entered a period of decline as trading patterns were disrupted by the arrival of various European powers in Southeast Asia. So I believe at this time, Joe, the British come to be a very important factor in uh, the direction that Brunei is is taking. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the the British really took advantage of a weakness within the ruling elite. So in the 1660s and and 70s, there was a civil war in Brunei, which is considered an important part of its decline. Um, And its cause, like many of these civil wars, is quite ridiculous. Uh, to modern ears, at least. Essentially, it was all over a cockfight. A literal cockfight. Um, a, li- a literal cockfight with, with cocks fighting. Uh, okay, how literal are we talking for... here? Because I, I have a very we're, specific we're talking... image in my head and I need you to change it. We're talking about, you know, male chickens attacking each other. Um, okay. For sport. okay. For sport. So, the son of the 13th Sultan who was called Prince Bongsu, had a, a cock in the fight. And another prince, some kind of cousin, I don't know the exact relationship, called Alam, uh, they, they were fighting each other and, and Prince Bongsu's cock was defeated. Alam mocked him mercilessly about this loss and he killed him. Uh, the, the, the crown prince, the son of, son of the sultan, killed his this other noble. And chaos ensued. The prince fled. Um, and in response, Alam's father, this other noble, um, Abdul Mubin, garroted the Sultan to death and took the throne, which is a pretty uh, serious reaction. Um, he appointed, in order to try and appease all sides of the dispute, he appointed Muhyiddin um, as chief minister. He was the grandson of the man he just garroted to death. Uh, and things were fine, you know. People were trying to convince Muhyiddin to to turn on his his master, and he was kind of resistant to the idea of leading an uprising. He wanted to kind of bring peace and stability back to the country, but eventually, he was convinced by the people convincing him to become ultimate ruler of the region. Uh, it, it was just a bit too tempting, and so you get this bizarre scenario where, and I, I love this the way that they started causing trouble for the ruling elite was they would just the supporters of, of Muhyiddin who was who was chief minister would just stick spears through the houses through the walls of the houses of the people who supported the sultan because I, I, I assume the material the houses were made out of in a tropical environment was probably uh, not brick it would have been something you could stab a spear through so it became it was essentially a terrorist uh, guerrilla warfare and Muhyiddin, as a loyal chief minister, advised the sultan maybe he should go off outside the city for a while to where he'd be safe. And the sultan said thank you very much and, and did so. And then Muhyiddin immediately declares himself sultan. And this is where the civil war ensues. So about 10 years of people murdering each other back and forth. Um, and eventually Muhyiddin, the grandson of the originally garroted sultan, is put in place as the, the, the victor. With the help of uh, the Sultan of the Sulu Islands uh, in the modern-day Philippines, who who helped out and was given the province of Sabah uh, as a reward. So that's now a huge chunk of Borneo has been taken away from Brunei and given to a neighbouring kingdom. And this pattern of giving away large provinces continues in, in, in the 1800s. 
with a serious effect because I need to tell you about a man called James Brooks. He was born near Calcutta, um, which was then run by the British. So he's a. I take it he's not from there. No, no, Brooks isn't a common Indian name. Um, No. Yeah, so his people were from England, and his father was a judge in the courts of the uh, of I think the East India Company. And he was kind of a, a gallant, you know, young man. He wanted to be a hero and go out and make his name. Uh, he saw some action. As he, he got a bit of education in England, but mostly he grew up in in, uh, in India. And then he saw some action as part of the Bengal Army of the East India Company uh, in a war in Vietnam, I think, but was horribly injured. So sent back to England to recover. He had all these dreams of greatness, uh, which seemed unlikely. He moved back to Southeast Asia. He inherited a lot of money when uh, a relative died, and he bought a ship with it. And with this, he started exploring and trying to trade. And eventually he lands in Borneo in in what is now the the Sarawak province. And he kind of got word of a rebellion against the Sultan. Because, of course, Brunei still controlled the Sarawak province at this point. So he made friends with the uncle of the Sultan. He... um, kind of said, I, I reckon I can put down this rebellion of, of, of the indigenous peoples. As, as I mentioned earlier, Brunei only ever really controlled the coastlines. So once you got into the rainforests, there were all these tribes of people doing their own thing and weren't necessarily happy with Brunei being their nominal ruler. So James Brooks puts down this rebellion. Um, there was a bit of a hoo-ha in the capital because people weren't happy with them. Um, how he treated some of the indigenous people. So uh, this uncle of the Sultan got in trouble too. And Brooks was instrumental in in reconsolidating the Sultan's rule of Brunei. And as a reward, he was given the province of Sarawak as governor, which is a massive province. If you look on a map of the difference in size between Brunei, which is now, you know, you you gave the number at the start, Luke. It's only a couple of, uh, it's a couple of thousand square miles. Yes. And Sarawak is a very this, small this, sliver of, of Borneo yeah. in, in in terms of the total size of the island. And Sarawak's this massive province and it was given to uh to this European guy. And him and his successors became known as the White Rajas, which is a is a great name. And he gradually started expanding his territory into the into the areas that Brunei had never really controlled, bringing codified laws to those regions with varying reception, um spreading Christianity and kind of making it this a British spreading colony. Inwards, uh, spreading inwards the in, the into the interior. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Which Brunei had never yeah. really done uh, to any great extent. And uh, he really set his sights on destroying piracy in the South China Sea so that Singapore and Hong Kong and various other British interests in the region could be moved safely and commerce could move safely. So he kind of encouraged the British to take chunks of land around here, the island of Labuan, north of the city of Brunei, was given to him as governor against the wishes of Brunei. He took a chunk of land in between the two sections of what's now Brunei. So there's two sections of Brunei not attached by land. Um, and they were ceded to James Brooks during this period. And this is really when Brunei takes its current size and shape and level of influence. Uh, and just before we move on, uh, Brooks is an interesting succession. He, he didn't have any children of his own, so his nephew took over and after that his, his great nephew and there's it's widely believed that he, he was uh, he was gay um, as he never married and had some strong relationships with men so he's possibly one of the first gay heads of state which is interesting but of course wouldn't have acknowledged it at the time 
um but was really quite a character and it's worth it's worth reading up on him um there, there are podcasts out there specifically about him and his descendants that give a lot more detail and this is when uh Brunei in order to stop Britain stealing its provinces in 1888 they signed a treaty with with Britain to become a protectorate where Britain will look after its foreign affairs and leave them alone so Brunei becomes a British protectorate and uh, is ruled by the Sultan technically, but is uh, very heavily influenced by uh, Britain. In the early 20th century, there was a significant discovery in Brunei, Mark. Do you want to elaborate on that? For sure. Uh, as you maybe already know, I, one, of the ones, one of the things that Brunei is known for is oil. Brunei has had a lot of oil and in 1928, it was uh, finally discovered there. This had been a culmination of a long process stretching out from uh, 1866. There were uh, other oil fields found in, in northern Borneo, and they were aware that there was a, a good likelihood that there should be uh, oil reserves on Bruneian territory as well. There were seepages, uh, there was gas coming up from the ground, things like this. But there had been never any commercial drilling with any success. Um, this went on and on, and the kind of the interest of the Bruneian state would wax and wane a little bit. They would uh, have a program of exploratory drilling, and it wouldn't be successful. And then they'd kind of leave it go for ten, fifteen years, and then there would be another discovery in northern Borneo, and they would decide to try to give it another try. Eventually, in the late nineteen twenties, um, they were in one of these kind of periods of, of particular interest in oil. And there's a, a story of, of these two oil executives who were cycling to a geophysicist's office to discuss their, their oil search and where they should drill the next exploratory well. On the way, they took a break and on the air, they could smell the oil in the area. And as a result of, of this, they, they changed where they were going to drill the next exploratory well, exploratory well. And this was the, the one that struck oil in 1928. Um, from extrapolating out to, to today, uh, the projections for this oil still go as far as 2040. Um, and at its peak, production of oil in Brunei reached 240,000 barrels of oil a day, um, which is wow. huge. Um, fascinatingly the CIA fact book says that Brunei gets 100% of its electricity from fossil fuels so that's uh, they're, they're pretty they're pretty committed to their their uh, their main resource uh, another uh, similarly amazing statistic about Brunei is that as, as a result of this wealth that has flowed in from the oil revenues they have a national debt of 0% that's, that's nice. Yeah, it's nice for some, I guess. Um, I guess we can talk about this a little bit later as well. But uh, now that, uh, I mean, 2040 sounds like a long way off, but uh, practically is, is you know, they're quite far through their oil reserves. That is starting to have uh, current effects on the Bruneian government and the Bruneian state. So that's maybe worth discussing later on. Definitely, definitely. But for now, I guess we'll keep it. Uh, we'll keep our... yeah run through Bruneian history. Uh, so I guess the next next thing we have is World War II, I guess, is the next major event in Bruneian history. Uh, so in 1941, France falls to Germany 
and France pulls its troops out of French Indochina, which is now Vietnam. And this gives Japan a staging ground for an invasion of Borneo. And this is during the time uh, in the Second World War when Japan is uh, spreading its influence throughout Southeast Asia, taking over China, large chunks of Asia in general, and is, is sort of expanding. Easter Island, Nauru, Singapore. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. A few places that we've talked about before. So the army was designated to take over the British territories in Borneo. And the Japanese Navy was designated to take over uh, Dutch territories in Borneo, uh, which were a few at this time. Uh, so the invasion was led by a guy called Kawaguchi. And units came from the Canton region of China, uh, including Hong Kong and French Indochina, as I mentioned before. Uh, and the first invasions were in the Miri and Syria oil fields in northwest Borneo, uh, quite near to Brunei, and were very lightly defended at the time uh, by British forces. So Japanese made their initial landing quite easily and were able to sort of resupply their troops from there. So the Japanese Air Force bombed airfields then in in the area around Borneo to prevent uh, Dutch or British forces from attacking from nearby. Uh, And once the oil fields were secure, they moved westwards throughout Borneo, uh, encountered scattered resistance, but there weren't really too many casualties uh, taken by the Japanese at the time, uh, which is unfortunately a story of much of their invasion throughout Asia. British and Dutch troops were retreated further and further into the jungle, moving south towards ni- the end of 1941, uh, retreating into the interior of Borneo. Which is, is a dense, which is dense rainforest, I think. We need yeah, to... as, we've, as we've touched on, yeah. yes, uh, Borneo is an equatorial island, so there's uh, a lot of rainforest, jungle. So Not, not yeah, good for we... tanks and bombing, isn't it? No, no. So yeah, as we as we as we touched on before, uh, the interior of Borneo is uh, a lot more difficult to conquer than the than uh, the coastline. So in January 1942, uh, using small fishing boats, the Japanese landed at Sandakan, which was the seat of the British government at the time in northern Borneo. After short few days of fighting, uh, the British surrendered the government, and the Japanese navy then pursued the uh, the remaining Allied forces in the jungle who held out for about 10 weeks, uh, but surrendered in April 1942. So at this time, then the Japanese have full control of Borneo. And how long did this last for? Lasted until uh, the end of the war, essentially. Oh, right. Uh, They they actually occupied the island up, like, past the point of the atomic bombs being dropped on uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Right. Uh, The island was actually surrendered shortly after that, I believe. And just to give you a little bit on the occupation, the Japanese set up a military government on the island, much like they did in other occupied territories. Uh, They divided the island into five different areas, one of each of which was ruled by a Japanese governor. And uh, the administration remained in the hands of the local people. The island was actually quite lightly fortified by Japanese. Uh, They at, at one point, there was only about 500 soldiers in the territory. This was probably towards the end of mm. uh, their campaign in the Pacific. But when, that is in, uh, in contrast to, to some other countries where they literally t- took away the populations. So, Exactly, exactly. It, was, it seems to have been quite easy, not too difficult, I suppose, uh, to control, unlike a lot of other territories at the time. So the Japanese, like they did in many other places set up prisoner of war camps, set them up in Kuching, Labuan, uh, Ranao, and Sandakan. And I did mention that they didn't 
fortify the island as as heavily as they might have, but there there were some guerrilla movements. The most famous of which was called the Kinabalu Guerrillas, which is named after the Kinabalu Mount Kinabalu, which is mm-hmm. uh, the highest peak in Borneo. The, the, the place with the dragon, isn't it? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yes. Uh, and that consisted of about three hundred uh, Chinese and native island people. Uh, that was the Kinabalu Guerrillas. So they start they started an uprising against Japanese forces occupying Japanese forces on the tenth of September, nineteen forty three, and they chose that date because it was the eve of the tenth of October nineteen the tenth of October, which is a national day of the Republic of China. So as I mentioned, these are uh, mostly Chinese forces. So that okay. was why they they were feeling uh, particularly patriotic, <laughs> uh, and that's that's the day that they decided to start their uprising against Japanese. Um, they despite not having any weapons at all uh, to speak of, I mean. Oh no! They use what they use what were called parangs, which are apparently uh, types of machetes and spears. But they didn't have any um, firearms at all. Oh dear! Uh, they did. That was never yes. going to end well, was it? It was never going to end very well. They did. I mean, f- kill, full marks um, for courage. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It was very courageous, but uh, they did manage to kill. Uh, I don't have an. Uh, the the estimates vary between sixty and ninety Japanese soldiers. Uh, these three hundred guys managed to kill between sixty and ninety Japanese soldiers before uh, the guerrilla movement was put down. Kindly, humanely. No, I'm, sh- no. I'm sure, Mark. I I I yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. World War Two was known for its. Um, uh, here we go. Yeah, we've we've heard some some pretty dark stories before from Japanese occupied territories. Let, 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 lay it on, lay it on us, Luke. Uh, they subsequently, the Japanese soldiers tortured and killed hundreds and hundreds of villagers looking for information about this about this guerrilla movement, in especially uh, Suluk people who were believed to be working closely with the guerrillas. The Kinabalu guerrillas movement ended when the Japanese massacred all of its members on the twenty first of January nineteen forty four. Uh, the Japanese that'll do it. The Japanese also sort of slaughtered there's not really any any other word for it massacred uh, the suluks and baju civilian populations uh, to the point where almost the entire suluk population was just eradicated from the island after they found out that these uh, these two groups were sort of heavily linked to uh, the insurrection on the island so northern borneo at the time was subject to almost continuous raids and bombings uh, up until the invasion in june 1945 uh especially after the Allies retook uh, the Philippines, meaning that they could bomb from quite nearby. As we've mentioned before, uh, the Philippines is is very close to uh, Borneo. So after the Philippines was retaken by the Allies, there was regular bombings of Borneo. Once again, a a not unusual feature of uh, Japanese-occupied territories, there were death marches uh, in 1945 when the Japanese, I suppose, knew that the end was, was coming but refused to uh, surrender. Uh, they marched uh, over four and a half thousand prisoners uh, over wow. 150 miles. At the end of the war, by the time Borneo was actually liberated by the Allies, only just over 1,300 had survived. That's a massive, massive uh, death toll based on these marches. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, then after Japan itself, uh, the mainland uh, was surrendered. Then uh, Borneo was surrendered to Australian troops, I believe, uh, in 1945. Well, Luke, that that cheerful chapter is going to make the transition to absolute monarchy kind of a good thing, which is the first time that's ever been the case. Yeah, in, uh, 
It is. In the history of the country. Yeah. Yay. So we're going we're gonna to take a quick break here, give you some, some more cheery uh, local Bruneian music, and uh, we'll come back after the break with post-World War II, a slightly happier Brunei. As I mentioned, Mark, uh, the Australian forces then uh, were the ones that en- ended up liberating Brunei from uh, the Japanese forces. Uh, do you want to tell us where they went from there? Like how, how Brunei developed from, from there post-war? Yeah, for sure. So the Australian 9th Army uh, took it with the US naval and air support um, and were promptly replaced by a British military administration. Uh, from 1945 to 1946, got the uh, project of rebuilding Brunei post-war up and running. Uh, some of the first things they had to do were firstly simple rebuilding, uh, but also putting out fires in the oil wells. The Japanese had set the oil wells on fire as they retreated in a pretty, you know, mean-spirited, albeit quite predictable move. Moving onwards, around this time, there was a, a surge of interest in perhaps democratizing Brunei to some degree. And I think that there was a general interest on the part of the Allies of encouraging this kind of thing as a bulwark against communism and fascism. Um, it didn't, it didn't really last seemingly. It was the first, um, it was the first party, uh, the Bruneian political party was founded around this time but ended up being dissolved in 1948, only three years later, due to essentially a lack of interest. Maybe you could say that they're used to having a, a central figurehead in the Sultan, uh, and maybe the Allies weren't so interested in it once uh, the Cold War started to develop. So, and, and that that party that party was pro-Sultan, right? It just wanted independence with with the Sultan. As far as far as I know, they they were just keen on Brunei uh, in short terms. Yeah. They they were the ones who uh, drafted the national anthem and things like that. They wanted to make Brunei a more uh, uh, modern state, I guess, and and in that way to reaffirm Brunei's ex- existence for the future. Yeah. Um, so going forward in 1959, uh, Brunei became a, again probably a similar way to think of it is is the way of Hong Kong where Hong Kong has autonomy over its internal politics. However, in terms of diplomacy, uh, international relations and military, they gave these rights to the English. Uh, The British were going to help out uh, with all this. UK responsible for foreign affairs and defense from here on. Around this time also, the UK uh, was very keen on super teams. They had all of these uh, colonies all over the world. A very good example of this is they tried to create one country out of Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, modern-day countries. Um, this wasn't very successful, but they were trying it anyway. And they tried a similar project around Brunei. There was two options for this. One was a super team of Singapore, Malaysia, and Brunei. And the other was perhaps if Brunei could be encouraged to join up with Indonesia. This was the Indonesian interest. 
And these two options broadly led to something called the Brunei Revolt in 1962. The background of this was that there was a man by the name of uh, Azahari, who was the head of the Brunei People's Party, who, which on the face of things were sort of a uh, power to the people, left-wing uh, party. It has since emerged that Azahari was largely just a puppet for the Indonesian uh, Secret Service. Who were trying to exert influence on Brunei politics through this guy, and they, they, that party did have an interest in overthrowing the monarchy and bringing about democracy. So when they won lots of seats in the election that year in Parliament, uh, the results were annulled, and there hasn't been a, an election to Parliament since, as far as I know. That 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 would make sense. Uh, the, the as a result of what, what you're going to talk about, yeah, yeah. So Azahari um, wanted to rebel against the monarchy, install maybe a pro-Indonesian uh, administration, ideally, I'm sure in his mind, headed by himself. He was able to recruit about 4,000 men. Uh, he trained them. Um, and also they, they didn't have much in the way of weaponry. They had some modern firearms, but mainly was uh, shotguns. And they attacked many of the, the key points in, in the country, Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company, uh, they have the biggest interest in Brunei and oil fields. They attacked them and they attacked police stations, uh, strategic points across the country. Now, the response to this is so terrifyingly overwhelming. I've listed them out point by point. So just think, on one side, you've got 4,000 guys, uh, one shotgun for every four rebels, um, and they've kind of quickly taken police stations and so on. On the other side of this, you have a man by the name of Digby Willoughby, who incidentally was a champion tobogganer, later named Master of the British Empire. He re rescues the Sultan from his palace with the second Gurkhas. Gurkhas are very famous in the UK as a military regiment. To give you a, a flavor of the Gurkhas, um, their motto is better to die than live a coward, and their nickname is the bravest of the brave. So Digby Willoughby uh, and his sweet tobogganing skills and some of the bravest, most dangerous men alive invade. That's one. A second, there was 2,000 locals recruited, both via the, rem the remnants of the anti-Japanese resistance, but also a boat was sent up the Baram River with the red feather of war, asking the hill people, the Dialis, for help. Um, and add that, on that, to this... That, that, that sounds like something from a novel. I love it. Yeah. And then 89 commandos invaded where the, um, uh, the oil fields were and freed the foreign, the foreign hostages that were taken. In the middle of this, uh, this action, they found the hostages because they started singing she'll be coming round the mountain in unison to point out where they were in the uh in the complex the 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 result of this was essentially uh six dead in terms of the uh the authorities 40 dead on the side of the rebels and several thousand captured and politically the the, the result was that brunei decided to join neither super team not to join up with Singapore and Malaysia, not to join up with Indonesia, but to once again retain its autonomy. And Mark, there, there, there's some spectacular photos on the Wikipedia page about the Brunei revolt. 
of the 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 Queen's own Highlanders like on a boat yes, going yes. through the jungle, but you you've seen it with the guns pointing into this must have been just before the coming around the mountain moment. But like Yes. It's it's an unusual environment for British troops to be fighting in. And uh yeah, as you say, kind of scuppered hopes for Brunei being having a future as part of a larger super team. I reluctantly use the word. Um and so it's continued to this day both under martial law and uh and independent like se- separate from its its neighbors um also an important uh, date is uh 1967 because in 1967 the sultan abdicated and was replaced by the current day sultan hassan al bolkia who was uh, age 21 at the time and it's it's this man who is essentially formed much of the character of the modern Bruneian state. And I believe it was 1988 uh, or sometime in the mid 80s that um, after much negotiation and many treaties, uh, Brunei became a fully independent and autonomous state with uh, outside of the protection of, uh, of the UK. Yeah, about 100 years after it entered into the protection of the Great Irene Twain came out of it. Um, and as we say, uh, Hassan al-Balkia, he's, he's one of the longest serving heads of state in the world, I think, particularly as as absolute monarchs go. So he kind of is modern Brunei. And I remember when I was a kid, the richest man in the world, the answer was always the Sultan of Brunei. And that was all I knew about the place. He's Ooh. worth 20 billion. Yeah. The the rumors about that are that I mean, given that much of his wealth is tied up in uh, in oil interest and what's happened to the oil market, maybe he's not. Uh, I, I don't think uh, Forbes is necessarily sticking with that twenty billion number anymore. Yes, yeah, yeah, but but definitely has been the richest man in the world, and he's ruled according to a principle called Malay Islamic Monarchy, which is a a political philosophy encompassing Malay culture. Uh, strict adherence to Islam and the supremacy of the monarch. And he's not really that keen on democracy. He's kind of paid lip service to the idea of reintroducing democracy. Uh, but it's been, what, many, many... How long has he been sultan? Since 1967. That's a long time. And 49 years. Wow. Okay, so he's been the monarch for 49 years... There haven't been elections for Parliament in that time. In 2004, he did reopen Parliament for the first time in 20 years and appointed a new Parliament to advise him and sort of said there would be elections sometime. But that's 12 years ago. So I wouldn't hold my breath. And then one of the most controversial, I guess, things that we were able to find about Brunei uh, is the introduction of Sharia law, which I mentioned at the top of the episode which was in uh, 2014, yeah. which a lot of people will uh, associate with the Middle East and, of course, Islam. But they are the only uh, country... The only Southeast Asian country to be, yeah, to be ruled by Islam and and now Sharia law, which includes uh, punishments such as uh, having a a hand or uh, arm removed if you're caught thieving or being stoned to death in public if you're caught or convicted of adultery. Uh, So... In in th- in theory, this Sharia law only applies to the Muslim population of Brunei. That is sixty percent of the population, at least. Uh, but also, 
elements would apply to others. There, there was an interesting article in the Brunei Times very recently, which was... Um, which we've all become it, very frequent readers of now as, yes, as a result of this topic. Yes. Yeah, there's been a peak of, of our readership at the Brunei Times that I think we'll probably not be keeping up to date. Uh, but it's Speak basically... His his majesty my subscription. His his majesty questions why delay in preparing criminal code to prosecute under Sharia. So the Sultan's really pushing this and it feels like elements of Brunei society are kinda of going, Yeah, we'll get round to writing up those legal codes to uh to do all the stonings. Yeah, you will get round to it. Because it's been a couple of years now and I think he's he's frustrated at the slowness of the uh, introduction of, of of harsh and strict Sharia law to his country. This is an important development, though, because a lot of what is said about this, I mean, some people are, are apologists for the for the Sultan and say that, you know, simply as he's become an older person, he's become more religious, and that's why he's keen on further integrating Islam within the structure of the state. However, right. one could view it in another way, in that the uh, oil reserves of Brunei are likely to run out by 2040 if there are no... Uh, new wells or resources found. Uh, also, uh, and this perhaps might date the podcast slightly, but the um, oil industry is going uh, through a, a huge revolutionary change in terms of uh, new types of oil being marketable, things like shale oil and fracking and things like this, which have flooded the market with cheap oil. Um and it means that many, many economies in the world who rely on, on their oil resources for their income, and Brunei being a, a very good example, are really struggling. So one could say that... So this is a way of locking down control. It, that also, but also a populist move towards the Muslim population, um, his own kind of support and constituency, that perhaps maybe there will be uh, changes coming down the line that people won't like in terms of the cheap money, the, the social welfare, the free healthcare, free education, and so on, he's been able to provide with oil revenue, this may not always be the case. And he maybe has to find new ways to, to appeal to the people of Brunei. And one of them, uh, essentially, as, as 66% of the, the population are, are Malay, and uh, there's a very high, high percentage of, of Muslims also. Yeah, um, many of the Chinese population are Muslim too. Is, is, is further Muslim law. Yeah, yeah I mean... It, it it looks to me, I mean, uh, to to be not dissimilar, I guess, although we're at a different stage in the timeline, uh, not dissimilar to our Nauru episode, uh, which some of you may have heard, hopefully, uh, where Nauru was uh, at one point one of the richest nations on earth because of natural resources. And then once those natural resources ran out, uh, things were not as rosy uh, for the country but it's probably is important to point out that my understanding is that the sultan is very popular among his people. Oh no, he and he's, he's largely because and uh, largely because of the wealth and the free education and the you know the good roads connecting the country. It's a good place to live if you are uh, an obedient Malay Muslim who likes the monarchy or a sultan or a sultan and, uh, and it's it's better if you're a sultan because you can break the rules and maybe we should talk about the royal family's uh, adherence to just conservative just to mention uh before we move on to that which is a, a big uh, a big area of content contention i guess a big uh, bone of contention uh just to mention that i i spoke to you guys about this before uh we started recording that i actually was in borneo last year and uh i know that tourism has been a you know, 
not a not a necessarily compared to the oil a, a huge industry in Brunei, but um, the introduction of Sharia law has definitely hit the tourism industry hard. I guess uh, from what I can tell, like anecdotal evidence, just based on my visit, I asked a few people about Brunei, and uh, I guess in uh, in less delicate terms, I guess uh, they said that they would the locals in Malaysia said that they would not be uh, too keen on visiting Brunei, I guess, right now, uh, the way things are there. There are interesting things on, on, say, Brunei Tourism's website, sort of saying the first thing you get is, we are, we're a Muslim country, so, like, be respectful and don't be doing any stuff in public that we don't want to see. and you know, Don't be getting yes. drunk and don't be, you know, holding hands and don't be... I, I'm not sure it's possible to get drunk in, in Brunei. You are allowed... In, no alcohol. You are allowed to import a small amount for personal use as a tourist. But it isn't sold there, mm. uh, so ah. it's a kind of a once we can't see it sort of attitude, um, which is very much the case in the, in the palace of the sultan. If you want to tell us a little bit about that, Joe, where to start? I mean, the sultan's brother, Prince Jeffrey Balkia, and Balkia here is a is a kind of a patronymic name, so it's it's not a surname; it's just a part of of their name. Um, I was going to attempt his his full title. Do you know his full title or his full he, name? Oh, please, please tell oh, me. His Royal Highness uh, Pengaran yeah. Digadong Sahabil Mal Pengaran Muda. That's a title. And now his name is Jeffrey Balkia Ibn Al Marum Sultan Haji Omar Ali Sulfaidin Saidul Khari Ydn. So Very nice. That's Very nice. that's Ross. a pretty good description. So what I'm gathering from that is his father. <laughs> was a sultan who did the Hajj and was called Omar Ali Sulfaidin, which is true. Uh, that's a lot more information than your name needs to have. But, you know, royal families do that. So, uh, Jeffrey was the... Um, Finance minister? Yeah, and he was very involved in the yes. oil business. And now he isn't anymore because... Since 1998, yeah. He how much did he embezzle minister. or steal... 15 billion. Oh. The number 15, is 15 billion. 15 billion. So he, he he seems to have had his hand in the till a little bit. Uh, 14.8 billion, if we're being, if if we're being, being, if we're being precise. It was 2.2 <laughs> billion few, between friends. That's a few million between friends, though. You um, know? Yeah. So he was, uh, yeah, he was involved in the Brunei Investment Agency as well. And he just seems to have siphoned off quite a lot of money into his uh, into his own his own interests over the course of the decades of being a, an influential minister in the Brunei government. So his personal life has come in for a lot of criticism as well. He has had five wives, two of whom he has divorced from and three of whom he's still married to, and 18 children aged between 4 and 37, possibly more. That's that's statistics from 2008. Um, but he also seems to have had... Tell me about the yacht, Joe. Uh, Tell me about the yacht. Well, he, no he owns more prevaricating. Tell me about he, the yacht. He owns a yacht called Tits, uh, and the, the the little boats on it are called Nipple One and Nipple Two. Which doesn't seem like a conservative Muslim kind of naming system. Uh, Tell me about the concubines, he, Joe. Tell me about the concubines. He allegedly had a, a harem of of up to forty women who were his concubines and he, he paid women to come to Brunei to have sex with him and 
there are people like some of the ages of these women have been horrendously young. It, it, like, she's it, just all the things that that you could accuse a decadent, rich, oil baron kind of uh, sultan or brother of a sultan of he, doing. He, he, he took seems that, to have been accused of doing, and he ran with it. Yeah, and is involved in the most costly legal battle in the world with Brunei in order to kind of repatriate his wealth that he is expatriated. It's just, it's crazy. And then in 1997, a former Miss USA accused Prince Jeffrey, among others in the royal family, um, of flying her and many other women under false pretenses to Brunei to be part of a harem and uh, that she was abused by members of the royal court. It's um, it's pretty disgusting stuff. It's yeah, uh, and kind of goes to show that hypocrisy is often at the heart of strict moralistic um, regimes. So, one rule for the people, one rule for for the palace, and this doesn't seem to affect the popularity of the royal family in Brunei. But as external observers. Uh, you you might have some questions about it. Well, uh, I have a simple solution for that: no external observers. Yeah, yeah, that's, done. That's, that's one one approach. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's where Brunei's at now. Kind of, you know, they're pretty happy with the situation, but it's uh, it's far from perfect. All right. So, do we have anything else that we want to talk about in terms of Brunei or Borneo in general? Um. In in sports news, they were beaten 12-0 by the United Arab Emirates and 8-0 by Malaysia uh, in football. They are 186th in the world and uh, they don't they don't really do much much sports. Really, uh, uh, Wikipedia's article on sport in Brunei starts with Brunei is one of the weakest nations in sports terms but has greatly improved since 1999. And, and that's pretty... Yes, apparently pretty- uh, 186th in the world was up from last year. So that... Uh, on the in the right track, I guess. Uh, w- one thing I was just going to say that in in researching Brunei, it's often been uh, confusing, uh, perplexing, uh, just because so many of the place names and so on are so alien in in the pronunciation and in the the structure of the language that we like. I've certainly found myself wondering what what the hell's going on after reading a couple of lines, a couple of paragraphs. I'd have to reread it a couple of times before I'd actually start to understand. Just to, to give you an example of some of the, the this just this sentence here uh, pretty much exemplifies my experience. It was at a place called Ayer Bakuni near Kampong, Kassat, which is around the Sungai Kebun area in Kampong Ayer, and just across the Brunei River from the capital then known as Pekan Brunei. Uh, if you got anything out of that, you're you're a more you're from Brunei. If you got anything from that, you're from <laughs> you're there. From, you're from Brunei, exactly. It's it's uh, a very uh, alien culture, I think, in in many ways, and it, it's very hard to to develop. Pe- people don't really have a, a bedrock background understanding of it. So when you start to read about it, you're you're probably going from scratch. So in that way, it's a very unusual experience. Usually, you can kind of uh, you already know something of it, but Brunei yeah. is a uh, Still a bit of a mystery. Literally, all I had was the Sultan's really rich. That's where I started from in researching this. Uh, I, I did come across some nice blogs when I, I was reading, just people from Brunei blogging, like um, "Like It or Leave It" on Blogspot and "Brew Blah Blah," uh, which is another one. And like, 
the coming across lists of you know things that you'll only understand if you grew up in Brunei or hashtag growing up in Brunei. I really agree. I I don't understand anything. It's like when when you're when you're at a party and an over inquisitive auntie says, and then something in Malay. So everyone speaks English and Malay, and as a result, if you're not from Brunei, you're kind of going, "Yeah, I don't yeah. get what it was like to grow up in Brunei at all," and you're not helping. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and I constantly complain because no one knows where it is. Uh, you know, local Bruneian people complain about that, and that they're right that nobody does. Um, and we might just mention uh, we've mentioned now the rainforest a lot. The, the, just I'd like to say that the oldest rainforest in the world apparently they're like nearly two hundred million years old or something. So that's cool. And as a result, this is Borneo generally, but Brunei is also heavily forested. Um, so as a result, it's really got a lot of biodiversity, like hundreds of species of fish and birds and animals you wouldn't expect to find. And uh, I don't know, does everyone have a favorite? Uh, orangutan, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very famous for orangutans. Yeah, and the pygmy elephants as well. Yeah, I like them. There's also a kind of rhino that's specific to the area. Uh, I think five different kinds of big cat. So, um, you know, it's it, it's definitely if you were an ecologist, you might enjoy a holiday there. Uh, an oil engineer or a, an ecologist. Uh, uh, Brunei or, is is made for for you. Yeah. Um, and it's it looks very pretty, so maybe other people would too. But I'm not sure we'll be allowed visit after after that last segment. I don't think so. I don't think they're going to be inviting yeah, us for uh, so maybe uh, um, a tour anytime maybe soon. Maybe we won't be. Not, not even on a, a renamed tits yacht, renamed uh, Sultan's Pride or something. Uh, Dignity and chastity, the yacht. What's that uh, underneath the chastity? Oh no, we just uh, we just put some extra letters around the word tit. Don't worry. Boom boom. Yeah. Anyway, I think uh, that's the end of uh, our talk about Brunei for today. Uh, I'd like to thank both of you guys for joining us uh, today. You can find more about our podcast at 80dayspodcast.com or on Twitter at, at 80dayspodcast. Uh, we're also on Facebook. You can just search 80 Days Podcast there. Uh, Mark, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet this week? Go on. Um, I'm on Twitter at markboyle 86 and you can also check out my blog, The Toner of Leak, which is on WordPress. And Joe? And I'm on Twitter at, at on Burnach, A-N-B-E-I-R-N-E-A-C-H. And uh, any more information you can just find on the website. You can follow me on Twitter at, at the Luke J. Kelly or at my website, LukeJKelly.com. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye! dish is called ambuyat and it is described as a bland starchy food made of sago so that sounds great essentially it's a a bowl of bland mush uh mark